0: Joe Lowry, welcome to another episode of the Global Lithium Podcast. My guest today is Bob Morris. Bob is a battery metals expert with deep experience going back to the early days of the industry. Although we dealt with a lot of the same customers and both lived in Japan and China at different times. I wasn't introduced to Bob until very recently, and that was by Dan Blondow, the CEO of Nano One. It became clear immediately the first time I had an extended conversation with Bob that he would make a great podcast guest. His experience while at Yumicor, Inco, and Vale in both Cobalt and nickel, parallel mine in lithium and I really felt that having him on the podcast would be very helpful to the listeners who want to understand cobalt and nickel a little better. So without further ado, Bob Morris. You're listening to the Global Lithium Podcast. Bob Morris, welcome to the Global Lithium Podcast. Thanks, Joe. As we normally start out with the backstory, could you give us a little bit of color as to where you come from and your career stops?
1: You bet. So it goes back a ways. I I guess I'll be giving away my age a little bit, but I I, I was born and raised in Calgary, Alberta, in Canada. Um, I did my high school and university there. I graduated uh, from University of Calgary in 1988 with a uh, bachelor's degree in economics. Um, at that point, after that, I drifted around for a little bit, um, ended up, I guess my first real job um, that had anything to do with, with nickel or, or cobalt or battery materials was with um, a company called Sherritt International. They're um, a medium-sized nickel and cobalt producer, but they also had a, a specialty materials division uh, that was producing uh, things like nickel hydroxide for nickel metal hydride batteries, uh, also for not nickel cadmium batteries, but they were also started to produce LCO. And uh, it was my job as a junior salesman there to, uh, to flog that stuff, mainly in Asia. You know, we call it English-speaking uh, Asian countries. Hong Kong, more, more or less the Asian tiger countries, in- including um, Australia and New Zealand. did that for a couple of years. Uh, the company was actually bought out by none other than uh, Umicor. Uh, The the whole company wasn't actually bought out. It was um, Umicor purchased the specialty materials division uh, in 19, I think it was in the late 90s. With that purchase, uh, I got sent to to New York, uh, actually in Manhattan. uh, And I was responsible for trading nickel and cobalt metal uh, shortly after that, I was then sent to uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. And my job there really was really battery related. It was selling uh, nickel hydroxide and LCO into um, to the battery market. Not much of it in the US, but that's where I was stationed. Again, it was most of this stuff was was Asia related. Um after a two-year stint there, I, I was uh, kind of promoted into a posi- uh, more of a management position uh, with Unicor in, in Brussels, their headquarters. There, I just got more of a global responsibility for what I was doing in, in, in the U.S. So just these things come in two-year increments. I'll kind of move on quickly here. <laughs> okay. And then, and then I, went to, um, I was sent to Shanghai uh, in, in China, which I, I think we share a little bit of history uh, there around the same time. I was responsible for the entire, uh, we call the greater China region, uh, China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, mainly. Um, I was responsible for um, the, uh, the sales and marketing division in there, trading and, and selling of all different kinds of materials that Unicor had to offer. Uh, 2005, I, I switched companies. I went to Inco. And uh, after a couple of years in Munich, Germany, I ended up in uh, Tokyo. I think I got to Tokyo in 2007 uh, through to 2013, where I was responsible for basically everything that ballet and INCO did in in Japan. We had a nickel refinery there. That was a great time, a a great period in my life. I'm sure you can appreciate. And then back to uh, Canada after about a 15 or 16-year hiatus. Working with with Valley, uh, heading up their base materials business unit for uh, regarding sales and marketing of nickel, cobalt, uh, precious uh, precious metals, platinum group metals, and copper. Uh, and I did that until 2019 when I when I took a retirement. All all of the stars aligned there for me to for me to go. We we have all of these incentive these long term incentive plans, and it was just the right time to go at 55 years old. You could elect to uh, to go and keep pretty much everything you get. And then I started uh, just a consulting company. That's what I'm doing now, Joe. Just working with uh, medium sized mainly mining companies uh, on anything to do with commercial related matters, uh, sales marketing, looking at the market research and things like that. So it's keeping me busy. I originally planned to, to work about four hours a day, but doesn't seem to work. <laughs> yeah. never seems to work out that way. So here I am. That's it. Yeah. yeah.
0: Okay. Well, and just so the listeners know, uh, Bob and I have had kind of parallel paths around the world. Bob's probably had a few more stops than I did, but What I've done in the lithium world, Bob's done in a a much broader field, so that's why I wanted to have him on the podcast, and that's to pick his brain about nickel and cobalt. And It was very nice of uh, Dan Blondel, Nano One, who we both have a relationship uh, to introduce us, and so that's where we're going to go. You can pick your poison, whether we do nickel 101 first or cobalt 101, but what I'd really like to do is just frame the market dynamics, the size of the, of the market. Lithium is really small. My sense is that by 2025 battery will dominate lithium, maybe 90%, but I don't think that happens in nickel. Just run us through the basics and I'll just ask questions as
1: we go. Yeah. So I'll, I'll try to frame this in, in, in terms of a battery reference, um, what you were talking about with, with lithium and, and I'll try to frame that for nickel. So Nickel, the total market size is about 2.3 million metric tons. And I think what's important to note about about nickel is that 75% of the world's nickel goes into stainless steel, called 300 series stainless steel. Because of that dominance, what happens in stainless steel typically uh, happens in um, in in nickel, so it's what drives the market 100%. Other applications uh, for nickel are electroplating. So a lot of people, when you talk about, they say things are chrome plated. It's actually it's actually a nickel plating process that they do. A lot of chemical applications, including for batteries. Uh, and then you've got catalysts, and then you've got super alloys, which is similar to stainless steel, but these uh, special alloys are, are used mainly for uh, jet uh, air, uh, engine engine um, production, where you need a very high, durable, and ductile metal that is very heat resistant. You've got this 2.3 2. million ton market. Uh, batteries accounts for about 170,000 tons as of 2020, mid, mid, mid 2020, you know, if you do the math, stainless steel is uh, still 10 times bigger than, than, than batteries. But I think the news here is, is that we're moving into a new dimension. And as we'll probably talk about a little bit later on the battery side of the, uh, of the nickel business is not only capturing all of the attention uh, because it's considered the sexy thing to, to, to talk about these days, but at the same time um, we expect to see tremendous growth on the battery side to uh, eventually rival that of um, stainless steel.
0: Tell me a little bit about the supply dynamic. How many major producers are there? What are the battery guys buying versus what some of the other uh, people are buying in terms of the chemical form or the, 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 I guess we would call it the the precursors in batteries.
1: Yeah, sure. So we have typical mining industry. You've got um, probably four, or five uh, very large players that are producing nickel. And most of them are uh, diverse, large diversified miners. Uh, so you've got Valley, which is arguably, you can always de- debate who's the biggest, whether it comes from the mine, whether it comes from refined, but j- just for the sake of uh, ranking these, uh, Valley's probably the, the largest nickel producer in the world. And you have Norilsk Nickel, which is now called Nornickel, you know, uh, out, out of Russia. They've been around for a long time, as, as long as Valley and long, as long as Inco, you know, before that. And then you've got uh, BHP, BHP Billiton, and Glencore, uh, who also is probably in the top five. And then you've got some some smaller ones, but those th- those are the big guys. Most of the diversified miners are producing. Um, a nickel metal that can come in the form of a, a briquette, just like you would. See, looks the same as you put on a barbecue, for example. And others are producing a kind of a, a pure, a pure metal, a cathode, if you will. Valley produces a few other different kinds, but it, in in a sense, it's all 99.8 um, nickel. So th- this is what the big guys are, are are doing now. You have a bunch of integrated nickel production that's going in stainless steel, uh, in stainless steel plants, particularly in in China. That are using a, a less pure form of, form of nickel. Uh, it's called nickel pig iron. Nickel pi- pig iron, for all intents and purposes, um, it's it's uh, a stainless steel feed. It doesn't have to be very pure, and the production cost, the cash cost to produce this stuff, is 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 lower than a pure nickel. If you divide this up, we'll, we've divided up what's called a class one nickel and a class two nickel. Class one nickel is 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 loosely defined as having a purity of 99.8 and it doesn't have to be metal. When you talk about class one, it could be chemicals such as uh, a nickel hydroxide or um, uh, a mixed hydroxide, which which are primarily used for uh, lithium ion batteries. And then you have the class two, which is anything less than 99.8 purity. Uh, And that's mainly mainly goes into into the stainless steel uh, market where the purity demands are not so high. And you've got about a 50-50 split. So when we talk about 2.3 million tons market, about 1.2, uh, 1.2 million is, is considered this class tube, mostly nickel, pig iron, and ferro-nickel. And then the rest is uh, either high-purity metal or high-purity nickel chemical version.
0: And as we move towards the cathode makers, who's making contact with the cathode makers? Is it these big producers or is it smaller guys who are further processing it?
1: It's a good question. And, and I just have to say the answer to that is everybody. Um, if you asked me this if you asked me this question two years ago, it, it would have been a little bit different. The cathode guys, I think they under, understand about battery metal scarcity. They understand a lot better now than they did before. And um, I think a lot of the big guys like Umicore, um, BASF, for example, they now deemed it a top priority for them to... Uh, engage with the miners uh, to ensure that there's going to be sufficient supply. I think even I, I think Joe you you know that in, in this whole at least for nickel and cobalt I, I assume it's similar for for lithium is that nobody really knows who's going to take the lead on nickel purchase or on on these metal purchases is it going to be the OEMs is it going to be the cathode makers is it going to be the battery guys? Um, exactly, it's exactly
0: and, and, the same with lithium. It's yeah. we're, it's it's a changing story.
1: Yeah. so every, everybody agrees that um, there needs to be that connection um, with, with the with the miners, particularly the big miners. Uh, this is where the immediate supply is going to come from. but there's also a lot of discussion from with the with the cathode guys. With with, the, with smaller independent producers, uh, startups, and junior miners, it, it's going on all over the place. And and quite frankly, things have not shaken out uh, as of yet um, in terms of how the supply chain is really going to end up at the end of the day.
0: Well, that's that's an interesting point that leads to another question, is that you have all these big plans of OEMs that are still nascent, and then you have... All the concern now and all the pronouncements that the OEMs are going to be so environmentally scrupulous and they're not going to buy from any place that has any taint. How is that shaking out? In, and obviously, when we'll get to it when we talk about cobalt. But in nickel, what's the, what's the status in terms of are there places you want to buy from and places you don't want to buy from just because of their uh, ESG uh performance
1: yeah i you know th- th- this is the, the the talk of the day and and, and I, I think it's 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 more than i think it's more than lip service y- you know with the stainless steel guys it's really not an issue but when you've got oems and, and battery guys that that are very concerned about their brand going forward that they're taking this thing seriously and, and because you know we're dealing with with evs uh, evs must demonstrate that let's say there's a the lowest possible carbon footprint, for example, that you can have. Everybody on all sides is is, is, is taking this um, is taking this quite seriously, in, in, in my view. If you're when you're talking about engaging battery guys or OEMs, engaging nickel producers. I mean, there's a classic example that just came up. Um, I would say a month ago, there's a lot of new nickel production for batteries being constructed in Indonesia. So you've got about two hundred thousand tons of nickel of projects that are either starting or are developing in Indonesia, and they're using a process called HPAL, high pressure acid leach. As part of this uh, process, um, a lot of the effluent was, they were all planning to, um, to to do deep sea effluent disposal. This raised a lot of eyebrows. I mean, the Indonesian government said it's okay, as long as it was the tailings go into the deep sea, it should be all right. But this really scared the heck out of a lot of the OEMs um, and and a lot of the capital guys, and in fact, as we see now, that uh, three of the biggest projects have reversed that uh, decision, and will go to what's called the dry stacking. So the uh, the tailings will be dried, and they will be they will be stacked um, on land. So that's th- it's it's one example of uh, that. This is not just um, a bunch of a bunch of talk. So Tesla, uh, for, for uh, in, another example, they they want. Clean and ethically sourced battery metals. Yes, and they talk about it, but they're they're acting upon it. Let us just put it that way. So, you know, partially because it's it's electric, it's it's EVs, it's it's deemed clean, that the supply chain chain as a whole needs to comply with this. Whether miners nickel or cobalt will get higher premiums for their product, if 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 it's ethically sourced and if they do the right things, it's it's yet to be seen. But my view is that. At some point, there will have to be a differentiation between what goes into the stainless steel side and what goes into the battery side if, if you're looking at, if you're trying to maximize your ESG buck, if you will.
0: Well, that brings up a great point too when you talk about getting a premium. How are these products that are going into battery price? Is it LME plus if you're doing extra processing or how does that work?
1: Yeah, so typically when you look at a pure Nickel, Nickel's a little bit different than cobalt, but, but focus on nickel, it's, it's, it's LME-based. The history of this goes back a, a, a little bit when the likes of, you know, a lot of OEMs that, that I was initially speaking to while I was at, at Valley, um, they seem to have this volume discount notion that the more nickel you buy, <laughs> the bigger discount you should be getting from the LME. But the logic that we have to give, that we gave back to them was, look, there's two things here. No reason for me to sell to you below the LME price when I can actually deliver it to deliver the product to the LME at LME. Yeah. Uh, in addition to that, the more volume when you, the more volume that you buy will in effect increase the LME price itself. So this, this concept in the OEM world is hard to, it's really hard for them to get their heads around it because the procurement guys in these OEM companies, they know how to squeeze and, and, all about volume. The higher the volume, the, the 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 lower you have to price your your parts, if you will. So, from from that from that perspective, I think they're coming around to the fact that at the very least, it's going to be an it's going to be LME and it's going to be based on on an LME plus uh, plus premium. Um, I I don't think there's any any way around it because there's going to be competing purchasers for. A finite amount of nickel if you want the nickel or oh, and and somebody else wants it you're going to have to pay a little bit more than than the others now could there be any different any any different scenarios maybe uh, one such scenario could be a junior miner for example an oem invests 100 million dollars in, in in their mine, and then they get an offtake of that material at at a discount yeah sure that, that can happen but primarily speaking um it's a premium product i, I think that's uh it will be priced uh, accordingly. And supply and demand has a big impact on this too. As, as you, If you start to see a, a, a supply squeeze, premiums go up. So we'll, what we can say is, is the, in general, we won't be seeing discounts into this industry from, from nickel.
0: Yeah, well, that's, that's an interesting point because when I started off, as the only supplier to Tesla supply chain because I was the only one that was qualified. And the negotiation was, sorry, guys, the more you buy, the more you pay because you increase my risk. In one year, the the trading company involved with purchasing hydroxide, lithium hydroxide for sumatumal metal mining for Tesla's cathode mm-hmm. wanted, six, wanted 60% of my capacity. And I said, well, you gotta you gotta sign a take or pay and you gotta pay more. And they were like, Well, no, we should pay less. It's the exact same logic. And I, and it's that's gonna be an interesting scenario when the when the market of lithium turns back to shortages, how those negotiations go because there is no LME for for lithium, so it's all right touchy feely. That's a conundrum the OEMs have as they get more involved but that's another interesting point that you made is who's going to be the buyer the least the, the people i last want to deal with are the oems because they're the yeah, yeah. they're the biggest hardball players so it's yeah it's uh
1: yeah that's true and i think light will lithium i mean i'm far away from, from from lithium but if you look at cobalt cobalt's cobalt's uh an lme product but there's no liquidity on the lme for cobalt so Nobody uses it. I shouldn't say nobody, but it's, it's, it's not used very much. It's the, the Fast Markets Metal Bulletin uh, publication price that is used. And I think there's a lot more flexibility around producers and, and buyers to find deals that can be structured in many different ways, whether they link it to the metal bulletin, whether they uh, they offer fixed pricing. There's a lot of fixed pricing that goes on in Kobo. And, and just due to the fact that, that cobalt is dominated by, you know, three, three suppliers uh, would indicate that, you know, there's just a whole bunch of different ways to, to come together. It, it's, a, it's a lot different than nickel.
0: Well, let's segue into kind of cobalt 101 in terms of framing that market and how big is battery with respect to demand for cobalt. Uh, I know it's oftentimes a co-product, so it's, it's a little different scenario than what you outlined for nickel.
1: Cobalt's interesting. I, I, I actually, I've always had kind of a a, a, a love for, for cobalt, partially because it's 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 much smaller, it, it's much more opaque. It, it, the total, uh, I, I think the total total production in two thousand twenty should come in around one hundred and thirty thousand tons. So to almost you know fifteen or twenty times smaller than than than, than nickel. Uh, it's it's the reverse of, of, of kind of nickel, such that batteries accounts for. Probably sixty-five or seventy percent of of consumption now, and back in the day when when I was in the late nineties, I mean, it was batteries was hardly anything. So it's dominated by the battery guys. Interesting about cobalt is, like you said, it's it's um, it's it's almost exclusively the byproduct of nickel and copper. So supply and demand really, it's 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 demand inelastic. Let's just say that. The man goes up for cobalt, you just, can't, you just can't start making more cobalt because you're dependent on copper and, and, and nickel. Now, there is uh, a qualifier to that, and that's the, the DRC, the, the Congo, um, where there is kind of artisanal mining that, that mines cobalt. And right now, they're the swing producer. Cobalt goes, cobalt goes to, say, $20, $20 a pound, then that kind of flicks the switch for the artisanals to to go in and start to produce more. So there's no really shortage of cobalt. I think the problem is really since it's, 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 it's a byproduct, and number two, um, you know, you have this artisanal component, Congo is full of cobalt, um, It's just can you get it out of there uh, properly and it can be ethically sourced. So, you know, the supply and demand dynamics, I would say that uh, the balance today, the market's quite balanced. There's a lot of expectations that there's going to be uh, shortages coming up um, uh, just because of EVs. If you look at the projected growth rate of EVs and the projected chemistries that are going to be employed uh, the battery chemistry cathode chemistry is going to be employed in there then a definite shortage is, is is looming hence all the talk about everybody's going to eliminate cobalt out of their batteries which which is I would say half truth and and, and half showmanship from a lot of the battery guys that just don't want to see the price go up um, so it's it's an exciting it's an exciting uh, market I mean look at the other applications also super alloys like nickel but also hard facing metals it's got a bunch of small niche applications chemical applications that really are, are really diverse and it's interesting that the cobalt is really a unique element that has very few areas of substitution even over the past 150 years it's it's hard to substitute cobalt out okay they're they're doing it in batteries to a certain extent but it, it's 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 a very unique element
0: yeah it's that's very an interesting topic. A couple of years ago, I, I met with Sumitomo Metal Mining. They, they told me how little cobalt they actually used in NCA. But the story from Tesla was still that, you know, we, we're going to go cobalt free. And I never really understood whether that was just another one of Elon's ploys or whether it was more ESG driven. What's your perspective on that? What's your perspective on cobalt free? Cathode that's not LFP.
1: It's hard. I mean, if anybody's reached the point, you know, to to do this, it's it's uh, it's Tesla. I, I think you know their eight one one chemistry actually um, is is not really one one. It's 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 the you know the last digit is probably 0. 0.8 and going down to going down to point five. So they're 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 doing it. But, but one thing is is, is um, what's important to note is the cobalt plays such an important role. In uh, stabilizing uh, the the battery, um, and nickel itself is is extremely volatile. So the cobalt works to to kind of um, tame the thermal dynamics that are you know that that are in the battery. That being said, there's so much talk of eight one one dominating the industry, but in fact, um, really that's not the case. Today, um, the vast majority of material that's being produced is. Um, is a 622 or 532, um, mainly uh, because uh, 811 in itself is, is harder to, it's more expensive to produce. Although the elements, the materials that are being used are, are, are cheaper. And there's this this whole safety equation that cobalt right now is not a hundred thousand dollars a ton. It's still fairly fairly reasonable from that from that perspective. There there is a movement to to high nickel cathode, no doubt about it. But if you were just listening to what's coming out on on the press and from analysts, you would believe that we're already there. But uh, I would argue that we're we're not there. We're we're still in the Six two two five three two. The uh, category and the movement is to hire nickel chemistries. I, I get that, but it's going to take time. So, um, in, in, you know, as, as we move forward, um, will cobalt be engineered out? I would say probably not fully over the next uh, over the next decade. Um, just because you know, from a electrochemistry point of view, it's it's extremely important. Um, and uh, at the end of the day, it, it's a good news story because um, if, if we were producing the 111 or, or 532, um, you would have a serious shortage of cobalt by 2024, 2025, which would would seriously jeopardize um, the, the NCM and NC, the NCM NCA uh, um you know batteries them, themselves they, they, they'd be priced out of the market, so um, yeah,
0: this is a hugely important question for the lithium industry because I've argued for the last two years since the 811's taking over mantra started that it wouldn't happen quickly and it probably wouldn't happen at all. It would there would be a place for 811 certainly, but that. You know, six two two would might be the the sweeter spot. And and the reason that's important to the lithium guys is because if 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 you go over six, you have to use lithium hydroxide as the right. lithium raw material. And you know, you had all these new juniors saying, Oh, I guess we need to make hydroxide or you know, whatever. And I always said, you know, I think the market will will gravitate towards balance because there's a real there's a real lithium difficulty. If you go to hydroxide, you, you bring in shelf life issues, you bring in other, other problems that uh, lithium carbonate as a raw material doesn't have. So that your perspective on that is is quite interesting. If we go back to when Liven, my former employer, when it was called FMC, built some of their hydroxide capacity in China, they really thought there would be a high nickel market in China that they would sell to, <laughs> but that hasn't really panned out yet. What do you see happening? Do you see China staying as a five, three, two or six, two, two, uh,
1: world? Um, it just reminds me of what, what I read, uh, from the, the chairman of, um, uh, CTL, um, and he, he had said that we're ready to produce uh, batteries uh, using A one chemistry as soon as we get any orders. So um, I think it's the concern around safety, not only from the general public, but from the government in China that's very concerned about its image and understanding that the battery technology, dare I say, probably lags in China a little bit vis-a-vis vis- vis what's being produced in Japan and South Korea. That um, the risk of uh, implementing eight one one is far higher than producing uh, six two two chemistries or five three two chemistries, despite you know the uh, the lower en- energy density and, and perhaps the the less range that you that you're going to have in, in the vehicle. So in my view is is that we won't be seeing um, uh, a run up to eight one one. Uh, in, in china in any really meaningful way it may be on the out uh, on the on the fringes but and especially as, as we will discuss later with, the, with lfp coming in i, I just think the, the risks outweigh the the benefits at this point and um, the, the chinese producers understand that
0: well, let's stay on the kind of the catl topic yeah uh, you made a comment on linkedin recently that i liked it Battery chemistry is a slow-moving game, and there are no magic bullets. People have been writing the epitaph of LFP for some time, and then we see both CATL and BYD come up with novel ways to deploy LFP. Mm-hmm. It, it, they didn't really I, so much improve the cathode as improve, the, I think, the battery pack design. But could you comment on, on that and in light of this whole theme of if you have better lfp that changes the whole nickel demand profile too or could
1: in in for sure for sure i mean i'm a little bit guilty of that because i i kind of wrote it off as well lfp it's just because you know when you you work for when you work for a nickel producer you tend to be bullish and you know I've, i've tried to refrain from that but okay the, the issue with, with, with LFP at the end of the day is the theoretical energy density. It's, it's much lower than particularly for high nickel cathodes. That being said, um, you know with the innovations they've done around uh, the packaging and the announcement that, that it's going to be used, the LFP batteries will be used in the uh, Tesla Model 3 that's being produced in China for so some of the shorter range ones. Um, I think it's proven that it's it, it's it, it has a place and, and, you know, the obvious place is, is probably may not be um, mid to high performance range, say automobiles or light duty vehicles, but certainly buses and for stationary um, energy sources. I, I don't know if you can beat it uh, because the raw materials are obviously iron is cheap, it's cheap. You know, it's cheap as dirt, but the uh, manufacturing process is, is not any, any lower. But there's still quite a significant gap between, you know, between the cost, if you're comp- comparing energy densities or you're comparing usages. There is a, a, a big financial benefit uh, in implementing LFP in those applications that um, works well. And uh, it, it's a lot. Um, it's a lot if you're taking heavy-duty you're 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 taking buses. uh you're taking a lot of stationary that's a big chunk of the gigawatt hours that are going to be produced over the next decade that being said i I think that there's going to be plenty of uh business to go around for the nickel and the cobalt guys as 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 well as the lfp guys so i I think it's a good news story at the end of the day how impacts nickel and, and cobalt going forward i think um projections uh, uh, have to come down over the next decade to where they thought it was maybe two or three years ago. But the, the point there being is that every year the projections go up so high that, you know, in fact, it's still going to be a, a big boon for a nickel and cobalt suppliers going forward. Even if, if LFP takes their rightful place in in, in, in the battery world.
0: Well, as somebody who's been around the battery industry for a long time, I'd just like to ask you your perspective on projections. I used to always get grossly overdone projections uh, from my, <laughs> cu- my customers. <laughs> and if we have anywhere near the kind of demand people are positing for 2025 and in 20, 2030, it's going to be a very interesting world. But I just kind of want to bring this back to LFP also, because when I would listen to people talk about, well, outside of China, everybody's going to want a high range vehicle that requires high nickel cathode. And I always thought that was very short sighted. I think especially people in in North America tend to have range anxiety. They tend to drive longer distances in commutes and the way they think about going on vacations. But it seems to me that, if you have uh, an LFP vehicle that's in the mid-range that has a reasonable capacity, you know the projections for all these high-end vehicles may be uh, a little skewed. I just wonder mm-hmm. what your thoughts are on on that idea.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at the industry uh, as a whole, I, I think we're in a perfect storm. I always say that the trains left the station, so. I, I think, regardless of the chemistries at this point, you know we're we're looking at, at twenty five to thirty five percent annual growth rate for the next decade, which is astounding. And and the only way that that's not going to happen is if, if there's a, a lack, there's a there's a big problem within the supply chain that they can't achieve it. So the governments around the world are are supporting this. Uh, you know, it's still an infant technology. It will. Come to outperform in every way, shape, or form an ice an ice vehicle. Uh, it's just a matter of time. Um, and as the costs come down, that's 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 going to be um, that's going to be the, the the ultimate driver of it. Now, you know, it's funny because I always had that conversation too about this range anxiety. There's a big difference between what people need and what they want, and and they seem to really they they seem to really want uh, uh, longer range and. I think they're comparing it to, um, to, to, to ice, where internal combustion engine vehicles, where you're getting, you know, 600, 700 kilometers or more uh, on on a tank of gas. Uh, And, and, and and people want to do that with uh, batteries. You know, it still takes longer to charge uh, than than it does for an ice that's coming down a lot. And this is where, where the guys at Nissan made a big mistake. They, you know, when they, First came out with the Leaf with the 100 kilometers, which was 65 miles range, and, and they did all the math. They they did everything right. They said yeah, the people don't need it. They just don't need it, and it's true. They probably didn't need it, but they wanted the the, the the longer range. So it's kind of a psychology thing. I think people really get to understand that it's not really what you know they need. Okay, sure, it may, it, it may change, but, but you know I think people aren't going to be comfortable until they're getting six 600 miles, five or Five or six hundred miles uh, to an end-to-end charge. Um, I, I mean, I—I uh, I was. My next car is going to be electric, and and uh, um, I don't want anything under to eat two hundred kilometers. And I'm semi-retired. Thing will last me a week but it's just imprinted on me that um, this is what I need. <laughs> it depends. another interesting scenario where they don't seem to be interested in electric cars, which um, I think is gonna come back to, to bite them big time. Each, each area has different requirements, and not only requirements for range, but for also cost, right, with what they can afford. There's gonna be, uh, I mean, like I said, there's gonna be chemistries for, for, for everybody. I think that people have underestimated LFP, Uh, for the reasons that you just mentioned and we just discussed, but it's going to be a multidimensional world out there. Um, You know, suppliers, especially for uh, cobalt and and nickel, to my world don't have anything to worry about in terms of the industry being uh, um, growing.
0: A couple more questions. One Tesla's battery day. It's been a well-worked a lot of talk about it. Just wondered if you had any significant takeaways or, or not.
1: Yeah. So I I viewed this in terms of uh, looking at it from my world. They seem to do an awful lot of, they talked a lot about, Hey, let's not worry about critical raw materials. Um, It's not that big. I mean, uh, you know, we're going to, we're going to do our own lithium mining. I mean, obviously you know, way more about that than than me or that, um, you know, they're talking to all, all the nickel guys in the world. We're going to reduce cobalts and we're going to reduce nickel, and to me, this was kind of, a, I took it in a way, maybe different than, than most people to say, when you start talking like that, you're really showing that you're worried about security of supply for, for these um, minerals. You know, They tried to talk around it a lot, but I, for the seasoned guy that's in the industry, um, I came away with that they are pretty concerned about uh, securing critical minerals uh, for their batteries going forward. That was kind of my takeaway. And it's kind of kind of a weird takeaway, but from No, I of from I my totally
0: I totally agree with that. I think that it was well the way they talked about lithium was almost childish. I mean it was uh Yeah uh, yeah. It was like when you're in sixth grade and you like a girl and you pull her hair uh to show her your affection. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So okay, let's let's move on. I I got another another perspective, especially given your background, is recycling. And I, I read something this morning, I actually put it on Twitter where, you know, Northvolt's aspiration, you know, they're working hard on recycling, they say, and their goal is to have 50% of their battery materials from recycled by 2030. And that makes absolutely no sense to me as a possibility it's a nice aspiration but (laughs) given what has to happen for that to happen it it seems difficult what do you you
1: think yeah i I mean joe i I really think it's simple math i I know this from the stainless steel industry because you know in in china uh stainless steel scrap is a you know was non-existent because uh, there was no infrastructure the same thing for for metals. you do the math you say okay battery got a 10-year life, maybe it or 12 years, maybe it extends another two or three years after, who knows. And then you look at projected growth rates for, 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 for batteries over time. It's just not, recycling is hugely important and it will happen and it, eventually it will sustain the market. But that's post-2030 because it, you can do it on the back of an envelope. So I, I don't understand how, how others are, what they're trying to um, accomplish. Like in Norfolk, the math doesn't work. You know, if, if you know how long batteries are going to stay on the road, if you assume they have, a say, say, some after, like even, even if, if, if there's none, you just don't get to the numbers that, that you're hearing. It, it's a post-2030 game in my view.
0: Yeah, I guess if I was Northfold, I'd be more worried about getting a battery plant built and and getting an operation and and focusing on that. But it's very interesting the type of discourse you get from the different continents on a build-out with with so much of the EU being about green and net zero or however you want to put it. I have such a high level of cynicism. I think as long as you've got a mining component in here it's 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 a better universe than we lived in but it's going to be hard to get the carbon neutral and you know the whole i don't know it's yeah it's agreed. it's not practical in in my opinion it's it's almost totally a- aspirational which is okay but
1: um, yeah i mean i mean re- recycling is going to be it's going to be legislated um and if not legislated in some areas it's the the oems are, are going to mandate it so I think we can make assumption that, you know, these big batteries, uh, they're all going to be recycled, even if they have to be subsidized, because depending on the metal prices, uh, recycling can be very expensive. Metal prices are low. uh, it, it, It needs to be subsidized. If they're high, you may be able to squeak out some profit. But I think we can assume that just about... All of these will be recycled in some way, shape, or form. But when does it become a significant part of the supply chain is, is the question.
0: All right. Well, we've been going quite a while here. Yeah. Um, anything that I should have asked you that I didn't?
1: <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, I always enjoy having a conversation. It was fun and I suppose we could talk longer, but, um, well, we got we got one more
0: we got one more thing to cover. I always do a few okay. rapid rapid fire questions at the end. Okay. So first one: What is the oddest food you have ever been served in your travels?
1: Oh, um, Okay. I would say, well, it's not that odd. I mean, I've had. I, I don't know. I what comes to, to mind is just the experience was uh in uh, twenty years ago in Taiwan, snake um were they cut the snake there at the table and then i had to drink the uh, green gallbladder juice. Um, okay, well that, that i'd say one, yeah.
0: i'd say for most of our listeners that would probably <laughs> probably qualify. I mean, you know, my honest moment was being in Sichuan province and being served cat in a pig stomach and it's the only time i've ever refused to eat i mean this was this was actually after the first SARS. Oh yeah. And uh, they said, well, OK, we don't need it either, <laughs> which, I, which I thought was interesting. All right. If you could live anywhere in the world outside of Canada and you have, would you live someplace you've already lived or would you live in another location?
1: I, I w- always dreamt about living in Hawaii. So in the US, and you know, but specifically in Hawaii, I've never lived there before. I've never been there before. I've been just about everywhere in the world, but never there. I don't know why my wife loves it there. Uh, so yeah, that's sure. That's that's
0: a good answer. We get a lot of, we get a lot of dramatic things, but, uh, Hey, I went on my honeymoon in Hawaii. It's i I've been there a few times. It's a nice place. It's worth going. Okay. One final question. Who is your most admired historical figure and why?
1: Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, I would say it would be Winston Churchill, partially because I studied World War Two in university uh, and I had an excellent professor just thought you know, how he came upon the scene and, and how he led British uh, in what might quite possibly were, were the, the odds were massively against them. And his, his, his charisma and his leadership were very inspirational to me
0: that answer is hard to argue with i i'm a big fan of winston churchill myself so all right bob morris thank you very much for being on the podcast and i think we will end it there
1: okay joe thanks very much it was a pleasure
0: as time goes on i will be attempting to have more experts in lithium adjacent uh businesses share their expertise on the podcast One of the benefits of continuing to do the podcast for me is being able to learn from people with deep experience that I don't have. And Bob certainly qualifies on that uh, score. We have similar industry tenures, really going back to the roots of the industry and being able to learn from somebody like Bob who has dealt with a lot of the same people just from a different perspective. The cathode and the battery makers uh, really made this interesting for me and, and I hope for you as well. In upcoming episodes, I will be putting on a live podcast that was recorded a few days ago at the Panorama Monero Lithium South America virtual event where I answered questions And uh, Carlos Galley was kind enough to uh, facilitate uh, the questions from the audience. So it was was a good session. And uh, thanks to Carlos. And then next week I'll be recording a Life Cycle Analysis episode with uh, Alex Grant and Robert Pell, who have done a lot of work in this area. So stay tuned. There's more to come. Of course, I will continue to have... uh, the best and the brightest from the lithium field on the podcast. But uh, I do want to expand the purview of the podcast to keep it interesting and uh, give you the best possible insights into the battery metals area. Just one more thing. COVID continues to rear its ugly head around the world. It's certainly uh, happening in the U.S. and as we go to the holiday season, there are a lot of people that are still in need. Global Lithium is up to $40,000 since COVID started to various food banks and charities that support the homeless, uh, women's shelters, etc. I give you that number only to uh, try to inspire you to give whatever you can give. Uh One of the things that I've also tried to do is today I made a contribution that came under a matching gift program. So I gave $1,200 to a food bank in Charlotte that will be matched by a foundation. And where you can, it's really good to leverage matching gifts that may be available in your particular jurisdiction. And with that, I will say good morning, good afternoon, good night, whatever time you're listening to this. Be safe
1: and take care.